audio parfait. A caution to our listeners. This episode contains subject matter some may feel distressing, including conversations on mental health and suicide. If you or anyone you know is suffering from or thinks they are suffering from some form of mental illness or thoughts of suicide, please seek help from a medical or mental health professional. The number for the National Suicide Prevention Hotline is 1-800-273-8255. That's 1-800-273-8255. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to open a fucking book. Welcome. Uh, I just want to thank everybody who's been listening for the past few weeks. Hope everybody liked our series on uh, Mark Twain. Yes. It was uh, hopefully in- informative. Um, this is series two, I guess. Yes, this will be our second series. Uh, before we get to that, um, just do a little network news. Make sure everybody knows that we have a wrestling podcast that we always do. Yes. Uh, it's called, I know it's not real, but that had to hurt. Because every time we watch wrestling, at least one of us goes, I know it's not real, but that had to hurt. So uh, head over, uh, listen to that, rate us and review us, and then come on back. And you can find it. it all on the same website as you're listening to this podcast, uh, yeah, audioparfait.com or anywhere else you listen to your podcast it on should be any platform. Yeah, should be everywhere by now. Uh, so we're going to jump over to our next author. Now, this man pretty much started an entire genre of literature. Um, And movies based off his writings helped launch the career of one of Hollywood's most famous action heroes. Oddly enough, he only wrote one novel, uh, wasn't highly received. Most of his publications come through the pulp magazines of the 1920s and 30s. However, in his very short 30 years of life, he wrote literally hundreds of poems, short, short stories, and letters. He created such characters as Sailor Steve Costigan, Bron Man Morn, Solomon Kane, Call of Atlantis, Red Sonia, Thoth Amon, Valeria, and definitely his most famous, Conan the Barbarian. Oh. Yeah, he used many pain, pen names like Patrick Mac... Patrick Mac... Conair, Steve Costigan, which is also a name of one of his characters, uh, Patrick Irvin, Patrick Howard, and Sam Walser. But mostly he just went by his birth name. Ladies and gentlemen, old two-gun Bobs himself, R.E.H., I give you the tumultuous and tragic life, the father of sordid sorcery, Robert E. Howard. Now, he's going to be one, he's one of those that I said, Conan, you had no idea where I was going. I could see it in your face yeah, when I, I first started bringing up names. Because yeah, that, no. that's not that's not really your genre anyway. Well, I love science fiction and fantasy. Well, this but... is sword and sorcery. So it's kind of a mix of the two. It's it's a lot like, uh, it's like poor man's Lord of the Rings, pretty much. But the second I said Conan, 
I knew. I you knew. knew exactly who it was. So a lot of you might not know who Robert E. Howard was. He had a difficult life. Not so much because it was difficult because of the times or anything like that. He suffered with mental illness pretty much his whole life, and that's and that made it difficult for him. He's not really wide known, but he's got an interesting story, and that's why we're covering. That's a, one of the reasons we're doing this whole podcast in the first place is to cover some of the people. I mean, obviously, we're going to cover the big names. We already did one of the biggest names in writing history. So modern American literature. We always want to go back and cover some of the people you might not have heard of, but their story is worth telling. So now, first things first, we always have to cover our references. Um, there's a three-part article on Howard, the creator. It's, it's called Robert E. Howard, the creator of Conan at Tor.com from Daryl Schweitzer. Uh, an article on Howard from the Texas State Historical Association written by Charlotte Laughlin. The site, RobertEHoward.org, uh, HowardHistory.com, LovecraftFandom.com, uh, HowardWorks.com, which you can find his entire bibliography, which it covers which it, it covers all of his short stories, all of his poems. It is long. This guy, I mean, if he wasn't writing, he was sleeping or eating or, or, or driving around, but he was writing something all the time. And the book, The One Who Walked Alone, Robert E. How Robert e. Howard, The Final Years, by Novel and Price Ellis. Um, she's somebody we will cover a little later. Some of you might like her. Some of you might not. Um, it all depends on what side of what you want to buy into. And, of course, as always, Wikipedia. Again, we sometimes you got to pull stuff from Wikipedia. You always make sure that there are it, it's locked and that there are references cited, uh, again, mostly for the bibliography. But you kind of get what you can get. Now, Robert E. Robert Irvin Howard was born January 22nd, 1906 in Pester, Texas, the only son of traveling country physician Dr. Isaac Mordecai Howard and his wife, wife Hester Jane Irvin Howard. Now, as I said with Twain, to know the man, which is a difficult thing in particular with, with this man, uh, you must first know where he came from. So let's get into his parents. Isaac Mordecai Howard born April 1st, 1871, in Holy Springs, Dallas County, Arkansas. I couldn't find much about his childhood other than the fact that his father was a farmer and landowner. Uh, but you start seeing more of him when he gets older, when he starts uh, to practice medicine in the early 1900s. He graduated from Gate City Medical College over in Texarkana, May 1st, uh, 1905. However, the Standard Medical Directory of North America for 1903... In 1904, adds that Isaac was licensed by examination without a college diploma. So if mm, that makes so. if that makes you feel good about your doctor, <laughs> like, well, people watch me examine other people. I, I don't need no degree in anything. You don't need no. I don't need no stinking badges. I don't need no stinking degree. Uh, he began his. That said, he began his career in 1899. I mean, I think that's how a lot of doctors and nurses and other people because there weren't many colleges or yeah, oh, yeah we'll get we'll get into some of the problems that here in, in, in a second that there were colleges that were selling they were selling their doctorate yeah because most of the time people wanted experience over 
education back then and now everybody wants education over experience again, being a doctor back then was here throw some cocaine on it and some le- give you some leeches and call me in the morning i'm gonna mm. go get drunk so during this period the number of medical schools in texas was expanding and dr howard picked up his diploma from gate city while the founders of these schools had the best intentions to offer bona fide instructions in medical science they had too few resources most of them ceased operations or were absorbed by other schools within a short time. Gate City was closed in 1911 when it was caught selling diplomas, but I think it's safe to assume that Howard spent at least a little time in Texarkana before being awarded his. Now, the good doctor was list- was listing his address as Christian, a small, now non-existent development, up to November 21st, 1904. Um, it's safe to assume that this is where he and Hester made their first home together after their January 12, 1904 marriage. Today, the only remnant of that town is a road sign says Old Christian Road, about five miles north of Granford, Texas. He was a country doctor, which means a lot of traveling, a factor that will come to play in Robert's ability or disability for making friends at a young age. He doesn't have a ton of friends. I mean, he has he has some close friends, but mm, you, you'll see guy. most most of the people found him pretty weird. Which he didn't help that himself. It wasn't like this is just the way he was, and you kind of had to accept him. He go you'll see he he kind of goes out of his way to be weird for the fact of being weird. I mean, I like weird people. The eccentric people i like weird people who are just kind of weird it's the people who go out of their way to be weird that just seem annoying and i feel like this is kind of how he was he went out which he actually comes out and says it and we'll get to that in a little bit that he he goes out of his way to be weird so um okay hester jane irvin howard was born july 11th 1870 in dallas dallas county texas Now, there's some conflicting information about Hester. Uh, According to some, including a series of interviews of some of Howard's neighbors and friends in the book Dark Valley Destiny, The Life of Robert E. Howard, a biography written by science fiction writer L. Sprague de Camp in collaboration with Catherine Cook de Camp and Jane Whittington Griffin. Yeah, these neighbors and town folks had very little nice to say about anyone in the family, especially Hester. Uh, she and her husband were routinely demonized as bickering, jealous, jealous, damaged, awful parents who bear a large measure of responsibility for Howard's depression and later death. Um, Hester especially has been snowed under by accusations of quietly dementing witchery. Oh, so... Not only are you a bad parent, but now I'm going to accuse you of witchcraft. Yeah, people didn't like them very much, and they were a little weird. They were a little, a little, ex, you know, just out there. You can hear our dog chewing on a steak bone that he was given last night. Chew. So try not to mind. Excuse me. That. Gesundheit. <laughs> um. Donk a chan. But she. She loves her son with, like, the burning inferno of a thousand stars. She sticks up for him no matter what, and that kind of 
pisses people off because people already don't really like Robert all that much because he's weird and weirdness didn't take you very far back in the early 1900s. She was said to be argumentative with people that complained about Robert's loud typing and screaming his stories out loud as he wrote his yarns, as he liked to call them. Texas, got a way of speaking, liked to call his stories yarns. But while he was typing, he would scream out what he was typing as he was typing. Yeah, but how could t- the typing bother neighbors? I mean, were they in that close of a proximity? No, actually, the, from what I understand, I mean, it's, it's con- they're living in the country in Texas. So there's a, right. l- there, there's a decent amount of room between him, his house, and uh, the next house over. But apparently he didn't type. He slammed his fingers into the typewriter. And so I guess it sounded more like drum beats than typing. And he scrolled like screamed he didn't just oh once upon a time i mean he screamed it with the ferocity like conan coming through him to attack somebody he screamed everything he typed because he said it it flowed out of him better that's what i mean every writer has a process yeah well his process got annoyed a lot of people and his his mother stuck up for him pretty much no matter what I, I would have too, but I mean, the na- well, sure. like, I'd tell the neighbors to fuck off and mind your own goddamn business. That's pretty much what she did in a more Christian way than saying that. Um, in my research, I found an article in defense of Hester Jane Irvin Howard posted by Leo Grin on leogrin.com. Uh, usually you see that type of stuff, you're like, okay, but he actually spends a large amount of time talking to the people that gave their interviews before, uh, where Leo makes the argument that DeCamp altered and manipulated the narrative to fit the story he was trying to tell, because a person with a loving, supporting par- with loving, supporting, supportive parents suffering from a mental illness isn't near sexy a story as a man being terrorized by bickering, overbearing parents that caused his mental instability and led him to his tragic end. So if you find out some guy, he's He's got these mental issues. And then you you talk to the parents, and they're loving and supportive. Nobody really wants to hear about that. You want to hear about the parents who drove their child to mental illness, not the parents who were there for them every step of the way. That sells better books. Right. So that's, that's the argument that um, Leo's making is that they didn't drive him to this. This is just – it's something he has. And this guy wrote this book and made it sound like his parents drove him to it. So uh, you can do, I mean, you can do your own research and and make your own assumptions. I mean, it's possible. I mean, even with his mother's adoration and support, the fact that his mother and father were constantly bickering to one another. Yeah. He could still hear that and that could affect his. That is also disputed. The, their their marriage wasn't the strongest marriage in the world. They they had their difficulties, but from from his research, it showed that they bickered a little bit. But it was it was like a they gave each other a gentle ribbing. They they would they they had the kind of relationship where they could poke fun at one another. And but the way they did it, a lot of people thought that they were serious. Oh, kind of like how you and I. Yeah, you you yeah, kind of like how you and I, how your parents are. Yes. If, if for people who don't know Stephanie, her parents. I love your parents. 
they give each other more shit than I've ever seen two people in a loving, happy relationship give one another. And it's 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 fun because sometimes you you don't know how serious they're being. So if people don't know your parents and they see them talking to each other like that, they can get an idea that maybe they're they can misconstrue it as as maybe their relationship isn't that happy. And oh, it seems like uh, my from, dad worships the ground my mom walks on. Well, from from what according to Leo Grun, his decades long research into the subject of of Hester. She spent many of her 34 years selflessly taking care of her sick relatives. So that just goes to show you how, how big a heart she actually had. Uh, in the process, foregoing the happiness of marriage and contracting the illness that would later, later kill her 30 years later. According to her stepsister and relatives, she was beloved by that entire side of the family Known for her, known and revered for her many kindnesses, her funeral attracted mourners from several states. Others report that she had many friends all across Texas, and when healthy, would visit them as often as she could. Until her health failed, she helped her husband with his medical practice, running various machines and other apparatuses. She enjoyed attending church, picnics, and festivals in town, and was remembered by other guests and friends as a gracious host. Mrs. Howard infused in her son a passion for poetry, ancestry, and the history of the Southwest. She always believed in him, prodded him forward, wrote letters to the magazines he wrote for, yelled at the neighbors when they complained about his typewriter clacking away at all hours of the night, and protected his writing, uh, protected his writing time from intrusion that's her protecting his writing time is one of the reasons her and novel and price his soon-to-be girlfriend uh didn't get along very well because she wanted him to focus on what he needed to focus on not on some girl so you could say that she wasn't you can you could point to okay she was overbearing the fact that she didn't want him dating but it wasn't so much that she didn't want him to date it was just she wanted him to put his focus on what mattered most. Right. He had a skill. He was good at something. She wanted him to strive to continue to be great at it. Yeah. And he loved doing it. He yeah, didn't he did. want his focus. She didn't want his focus taken away from that. But it also seems like he might he could have been horrible at it. And she still would have. Well, you need to do this. Because it's what you love. Well, you're horrible at it. You could be horrible at it, but she's still going to push him to do it. So th there's arguments to be made on both ends. I am not in Hester's corner, and I am not against her. She was who she was. She had plenty of flaws like anybody else. She had plenty of redeeming qualities just like anybody else. So you kind of got to take her at, at whatever you want. Through most of his adult life, Howard went wherever he wanted and did whatever he wanted with no mind control or withering dis disapproval that friends remembered. The only evidence that we have of him staying close to home is Novel and Ellis's book. Uh, in the last two years when Hester Howard's health had become critical, common sense and imagination hint at a hidden reality too nasty for Novelin's youthful self-centeredness to allow for. Uh, most people when they hear 
oh, uh, I can't go out because I have to take care of my mom. Novelin and a lot of other people were under the impression that she was just making it up just to keep Howard at home. Right. But that's not the case. Um, she, like I said, couldn't really imagine the night sweats, the puke and sputum, the gross incontinence, the IVs and drainage tubes, moaning, crying, and delirium, all things that Robert stayed home to take care of her, change her clothes um, when they soiled or when they were uh, sweat through, sometimes up to three, four times a night he would have to change her while her mm-hmm. and her while her husband was doing other things, having to do his practice. Uh, yet even during those years, Robert went to New Mexico with Truett uh, Vinson, Vinson, one of his only lifelong friends. He made other trips as opportunity opportunities warranted, and Ellis and others thought Miss Howard was faking to get her son's attention, but she did have to be pretty dedicated to this ruse in order to create gallons of fluid in her abdomen that needed to be drained, and then later up and die. So the final analysis, her detractors were wrong. She hadn't been faking the severity of her illness, and she had been dying a miserable and painful death all along. That is undisputed. She was sick. She was dying. You can take her personality for however you want to take it. Right. But she was sick. Uh, some of the gossipy stories about Howard Howard's marriage may have factual basis, but accurate context is key. Annie Newton, one of the neighbors, insistent, uh, insistently catty ac- anecdotes are offset by those of Bob and Marie Baker and Norris Chambers, all of whom... Leo personally interviewed and pressed and pressed on these points and who each gave essentially the same story. Annie Newton uh, was one of the neighbors in the book that came out and said all this shit about the Howards. And then we have these other people, the the Bakers and Norris Chambers, come out and kind of dispute it um, with this story. Dr. Howard was loud and boisterous, in an entertaining rather than boorish way, people loved his personality and frequently said things in mock anger as a joke. Uh, sarcasm. Okay, Pretty so much. then if they knew that about him, then shouldn't they be able to tell if he's ribbing his wife? But again, some people knew that. The people who were close knew that. The people who weren't close didn't know it. Um. And this guy went out to write a book to make his parents look bad. So they had a reason for why he did what he did, why he was who he was. Ah. Uh, It was abundantly clear that he loved his wife and his son. For instance, uh, DeCamp and one of his his interviewers believed that Isaac calling Hester heck was an insult. But people Leo Leo interviewed maintained strongly that it was a term of endearment, you know, you don't like being called Steph, but I call you Steph all the time. Not to piss you off, but it's it's a term of endearment. There, I don't like being called Steph, but there are people who I've known for very long periods of time that I allow to call me Steph. Yeah. But if you're just meeting me for the first time and you call me Steph, I'm like, no, it's Stephanie. Don't call me Steph. Well, I hate he, that. He called her Heck instead of Hester. He called her Heck. And a lot of people saw that as... 
a slur, but it wasn't. It was more term of endearment. None of the people he had interviewed recalled a single instance of him truly insulting his wife in their presence. All stressed his deep love and respect for her. Now, normally I wouldn't spend so much time on... I mean, I'd spend plenty of time on the family, but I wouldn't spend so much time stressing how much the parents really did love him and love each other because of the, the content of his mental health. I feel that it, it's important that everybody knows that, hey, it, it, parents always have something to do with their, their kids' mental health, always, whether they're there or they're not. Parents always have something to do with their mental health, but his parents weren't the reason that he had the horrible mental issues that he ends up having. They were lo- they did love each other, and they both loved him, and he loved both of them. So Yeah, it's like mental issues can either be carried down. Yes, nature or nurture. Yeah. Yeah. And people don't understand that. Nurture does have a fact on whether or not people get depression or anxiety or things oh, like that. It has a huge effect. You can look. You Your can environment look, yeah. has a factor in that as well. Yeah. You can it's, look at the majority of serial killers out there over the time. And two things they usually have in common. Well, there's a lot of things they usually have in common, but two major things. Uh, head trauma to the frontal lobe and a, a good or bad childhood. You know, I mean, most of them had horrible fucking childhoods. So it, it's both nature and nurture. Now, in his early life, uh, he spent that wandering through a variety of Texas cow towns and boom towns because his father was a country doctor. They went everywhere. Uh, what I could find, uh, Dark Valley, 1906, Seminole, 1908, Bront, 1909, Poteen, 1910, Oran, not Iran. Oran, 1912, Wichita Falls in 1913, Bagwell in 1913, Crosscut in 1915, and Burkett in 1917. They went everywhere. For one year, at the age of 12, he lived in New Orleans, Louisiana, with his, uh, while his father did additional medical study. That same year, sitting in a library in New Orleans, Howard discovered a book concerned with the scant facts and abundant legends surrounding an indigenous culture in ancient Scotland called the Picts. Then in 1919, when Howard was 13, Dr. Howard moved his family to central Texas hamlet of Cross Plains. And there, the family would stay for the rest of Howard's life. He would, that was their home. He would go a few different places. He would go to school here and to school there. Because you'll find out that Cross Plains doesn't have a senior year of high school. So he's got to go to an adjacent town to finish his high school. That's um, and then they kind of live there for a little bit. But their house, their home was Cross Plains. Howard's father bought a house in the town with cash down payment and made extensive, reserva- extensive renovations. Because Cross Plains did not offer the final year of high school, he and his mother lived in a boarding house in Brownwood while he completed his senior year. After graduating from Brownwood High School in 1923, Howard returned to Cross Plains. So you see, no matter where he goes, he always comes back home. That house with his parents, that was his home. Home sweet home. 
voracious reading along with natural tra talent for prose writing and the encouragement of his teachers created in Howard an interest in becoming a professional writer. From the age of nine, he began writing stories, mostly tales of historical fiction centering around Vikings, Arabs, uh, battles and bloodshed. One by one, he discovered the authors who would influence his later work, like uh, London and Kipling and Bullfinch. Howard was considered by friends to be eidetic, so and it, it would astound them with his ability to memorize lengthy reams of poetry with ease after one or two sittings. So pretty much a photographic memory, which I can imagine uh, when you're writing stories or when you're writing series of stories, that comes in handy because you already you, you know by memory exactly what you had written before. Right. Other experiences would later seep into his prose. Although he loved reading and learning, he found school to be confining and began to hate having anyone in authority over him. He has a huge complex about people telling him what to do. Not so much his parents. Um, he does kind of go behind his parents' back a few t backs a few times uh, when prohibition really hits. Uh, his mother made him promise that he would never drink. And he swore to her he never would. And then later on, he finds beer. And then when Prohibition hits, there's a picture that we will get put up on, on uh, our Social socials yes. uh, of him with a gigantic glass, like a wine glass almost. But it's huge, like the size of your fucking head. And he's standing like behind his house just drinking a huge thing of beer after he told his mom he wouldn't. <laughs> he, was, he liked to drink. Uh, let's see. Uh, experiences watching and confronting bullies revealed the omnipresence of evil and enem enemies in the world and taught him the value of physical strength and violence. He really did believe that he had personal enemies. And you'll find out later that he keeps guns in his car for in case his enemies come looking for him. His friends have no fucking idea who these enemies are. Because he, he, he grew up in the, the, the early 1900s. The West had just finally stopped being wild, really, just a few years before. Not not that long before that, the West was finally settled. And he loved the whole Wild West thing. So he was always waiting for, like, the wild, for, for like, people on horseback to come and get him while he's in his car. So he always kept guns in his car. They called him Two Gun Bob. He had a vivid imagination, and I, I think he lived within the realm of his writings. Yeah, he, he definitely lived in his own head. Anything that was going on in his imagination, that's kind of where he was. Yeah, and he, I, maybe he didn't know the difference between reality and fantasy. His imagination and what was going on in the real world. I think they they merged together in his mind. There's a good, he would be, he'd be a lot of fun for uh, the mental health community to really psychoanalyze now. Probably. Because they, I think they get, a, they get it pretty wrong back then with what they, a lot of people think he has. Um, as the son of a local doctor, Howard had, fre had frequent exposure to the effects of injury and violence due to the accidents on the farm and oil fields, combined with massive increase in crime that came with the oil boom. Uh, First-hand tales of gunfights, lynchings, feuds, and Indian raids developed in his distinctly Texan, hard-broiled outlook on the world. Sports, especially boxing, became a passionate preoccupation. At the time, boxing was the most popular sport in the country, with cultural influences far in excess of what it is today. 
Um, a lot of people watch boxing, but it's not the thing. Yeah. For a I, while, for a while, MMA took over, and it was the thing. And now it's kind of. I I haven't seen near as much attention paid to it. I could be completely wrong, but I was in MMA for a long time, and I kind of fell out of it just because it was. I don't know. It seemed almost like a fad. Yeah, it was. And then like everybody I knew, all these guys were training to become an MMA. MMA yeah, fighter. I, knew, I knew a few of them that were training. Yeah, uh, like, and I still know a few of them who train, but I, they're not training to become an MMA fighter. They're training just because MMA training is such a good workout. Well, but back then, boxing was the sport it, over everything. Uh, people like James J. Jeffries, Jack Johnson, Bob Fitzsimmons, and then later Jack Dempsey were the names that that inspired him during those years he grew up a lover of all contests of violent masculine strength he was big into you know bob get big bob get strong strong like bull he he liked the the muscular aspect well, of because when he was a kid he was kind of i don't say scrawny so much but he was he was kind of gangly thinner not very big not a whole lot of muscle did get picked on a little bit by people, and you'll see that he he begins to work out a lot, and he actually becomes a fairly large man. I mean, he becomes a pretty big, strong guy by the end of his life. So, I mean, if you have the determination to do that, to go from a gangly kid to a you know a right, big muscle bound guy, he, yeah, he was that way. In 1920, on February 17th, the Vestral Well within the limits of Cross Plains struck oil, and Cross Plains became an oil boom town. Thousands of people arrived in the town looking for oil wealth. Now business, now businesses sprang up from scratch, and the crime rate increased to match. Cross, Cross Plains population quickly grew from 1,500 to 10,000. Yeah, can you? I mean, we live in a little town. Can you imagine? Our little town going from what the five thousand people that live here now to like forty thousand, just in just to the size of the town that I lived in previously. Yeah, just just in the in the in the course of a few weeks. That would be crazy. It suffered overcrowding. The traffic ruined its unpaved roads, and vice crime exploded. But it also used its new wealth on civic improvements, including a new school, a new ice manufacturing plant, and new hotels. Uh, we don't have ice manufacturing plants, really. I mean, they, they do, and they, they, they come bring the, the big bags of ice to the convenience store. But this was like the ice manufacturing plants that made the giant bricks of ice. That went all that the way to... You would take to your house, and that's what and you would use that to cool down. Then you had the ice box in your house, which is just a refrigerator now. But back then, it literally was a box you put ice in to keep all your stuff cold. Hey, all you book people. Do you love wrestling? Do you hate wrestling? Well, I got the podcast for you. I know it's not real, but that had to hurt. Is a podcast Stephanie and I do on all the things we love and hate about wrestling today. Get a viewpoint from people who are strictly fans and live outside the industry. So go to audioparfait.com, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Howard hated the boom and despised the people who came with it. This is where I can really relate to Robert E. Howard. He didn't like more people there and he hated all of them. And that's kind of how I feel most of the time. Like, hey, look at all these new people. Yeah, they can leave now. <laughs> how you doing? Goodbye. 
You don't even say how you doing. No, not usually. Uh, he was already poorly disposed uh, toward oil booms, as they were the cause of constant traveling in his early years. But this was aggravated by what he perceived to be the effects of oil booms had on town. In a letter to Weird Tales editor Farnsworth Wright, every time I heard that name I thought of Futurama, uh, the summer of 1931, Howard said, I'll say one thing about an oil boom. It'll teach a kid that life's a pretty rotten thing as quick as anything I can think of. He wasn't he wasn't what you'd call a happy man. Doesn't sound like it. At 15, Howard first sampled pulp magazines, uh, especially Adventure, Adventure and its star author Talbot Mundy and Harold Lamb. Um, I'm going to say pulp magazine quite a bit. What a pulp magazine is, and uh, everybody's heard of pulp fiction, what that comes from is you had the pulps and you had the glossies. Now, the glossies were magazines that were made of good, expensive, quality paper. And so when they would print on them, they would be glossy. glossy. There you go. Pulp magazines were made from low-quality paper, pretty much made out of wood pulp. It was just pretty much liquefied sawdust that they pasted together, and, and it became the pulp magazine. So Pulp Fiction was a book that was written or a story, or anything like that, that was written on this pulp paper. The next few years saw him creating a variety of series characters. Soon he was submitting stories to magazines such as Adventure and Argosy. Rejections piled up, and with no mentors or instruction of any kind to aid him, Howard became a writing autodictic, methodically studying the markets and tailoring his stories to style to each. So he would... He'd read the magazines, he'd follow what they were doing, and then he'd try to write stories that matched what they were doing. Oh, that's very interesting. Uh, it was in Brownwood during his senior year that he first met his friends of his he first met friends of his own age who shared his interest not only for sports and history but also writing and poetry. The two most important of these, Tevis Clyde Smith and Truett Vinson, shared his bohemian and literary outlook on life. They together wrote amateur papers and magazines, exchanged long letters filled with poetry and existential thought on life and philosophy, and encouraged each other's writing, others' writing endeavors. Through Vincent, Howard was introduced to The Tattler, the newspaper of the Brownwood High, Brownwood High School. It was in this publication that Howard's stories were first printed. December 1922, issue featured two stories, Golden Hope Christmas, and West is West, which won gold and silver prizes, respectively. So he won the top two prizes with his writing. Howard graduated from high school in May 1923 and moved back to Cross Plains. On his return to his hometown, he engaged in a self-created regimen of exercise, including cutting down oak trees and chopping them into firewood every day. Ooh. Yeah. Um lifting weights, punching a bag, and sprinting exercises, eventually building himself from a skinny teenager into a more muscled, burly form. Uh, Howard would also publish his first poem, The Sea, in an issue of local newspaper, The Baylor United Statement. Now, many people would talk about how the family was just odd, 
but they would go into detail with Robert. And apparently it's all true as far as he goes anyway. Uh, he would be seen around town shadow boxing as he walked down the road. I mean, that could have been part of his workout. Yeah, but usually you do that in the privacy of your own like backyard. He would be walking down the middle of... Sidewalks weren't a huge thing then. You had roads, and that's pretty much what roads were for, were people to walk until cars came along and kind of took them over. That's what roads were for, were people to walk. Right. He would be walking down the middle of the fucking road, shadow boxing as he did it. So anybody who got in the way had to had to just move or get punched in the face because he didn't care. I don't find it that weird. Cause a lot of people did. I mean, because you see people dancing when you're walking down. And it's, it's, yeah, I, I find that weird. It's not that weird because it's, it's something you see fairly often and it's... Yeah. But maybe, I guess it was weird to them back then because it's not something you see as often as we would see it today. Yeah. Uh, at one point, he grew a big, flowing black mustache and would stroll through, stroll through cross plains with a huge Mexican sombrero because he felt that the sombrero was the best hat because it covered your whole body from the sun, which makes sense. It does. But he grew a huge flowing must black mustache and wore a Mexican sombrero with the little little dangly bits hanging all around from him. He'd shake his head and he wore like the bullfighting pants as he walked around town. Uh, Novelin Price writes in her book that uh, he saw her as he came out of the store and she was walking down the sidewalk when they finally had sidewalks and he came chasing after her with the sombrero just kind of shaking on his head. Uh, he always carried guns in his car just in case he had a run-in with one of his enemies uh his friends had no idea what enemies he spoke of most people didn't care for robert but they wouldn't call them his enemies along with screaming while typing at all hours of the day and night this type of behavior would be would accompany accompany he accompany accompany very why do i have trouble with simple words accompany because you i think you were trying to overpronounce it probably be him uh for his entire life he would say that everyone already thought artists were weird, so he might as well be as weird as possible. He was an artist. Everybody thinks, oh, art, well, he's an artist. He's weird. Artists are weird. So he might as well embrace, embrace it. it, I guess. Yeah. Like, uh, I have no fear of being weird. Who the fuck cares? I know. Uh, <laughs> Howard spent his late teens working odd jobs around Cross Plains, all of which he hated. Robert had bitterly resented anyone else who had power over him, including teachers and bosses, in the various part-times he miserably endured as a young man. He had a violent temper. Once when he was working as a soda jerk in a drugstore, an oil field, an oil field redneck made an uh, obvious show of stealing a magazine, rolling it up under his shirt. Robert seized an ice pick and said with a low voice, Are you pregnant? Fortunately, the man laughed and backed down. Robert realized later that he had been ready to murder. Uh, so it makes you wonder what would have happened if he would have lived longer or he didn't have the outlet of writing and later uh, of boxing to really get his frustrations out on. Uh, Sounds like he had a borderline personality disorder and maybe some bipolar. Maybe. Uh, he was also tenderhearted and emotionally sensitive. Uh, a story about losing his dog will come up later, and it's sad. Um, 1924, Howard returned to Brownwood to take a stenography course at Howard Payne College, uh, this time boarding with his friend Lindsay Tyson instead of his mother. 
Howard would have preferred a literary course, but was not allowed to take one for some reason. I, uh, biographer Mark Finn, author of Blood and Thunder, The Life and Art of Robert E. Howard. There are a lot of biographies written about Ro- Robert E. Howard, so you know. For a man who lived such a short life. Yeah, because his life was so crazy. Uh, it suggests that his father refused to pay for such a non-vocational education. In the week of Thanksgiving that year, and after years and years of rejection slips and near acceptances, he finally sold a short caveman tale titled Spear and Fang, which netted him the sum of $16 and introduced him to the readers of the struggling pulp called Weird Tales, which is a magazine you will hear a lot of. That was his go-to. Um, oh, and $16 back then, $243 today. Not bad. So for one story, for, yeah, for a story, guy you know. living with his parents, not too bad. Uh, now that he had finally had the start of a writing career, Robert stepped out of college and went back to Cross Plains. He then received notice that his story, The Hyena, was accepted also by Weird Tales. Uh, he then attempted to write a novel, a loosely autobiographical, Post Oaks and Sand Roughs. The book was never published in his lifetime and wasn't said to be very good, but it is sought after by Howard fans for personal information within. Uh, he used the alter ego Steve Costigan, a uh, name he would use more than once in the future. He finished it in 1928, but it wasn't released until after his death, which unfortunately isn't far away. Pulp magazines only paid on publication. They they didn't they didn't say, hey, you write us this many stories, we'll give you this much money now. You 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 send us this many stories. It was send us your stories, we publish them, we'll pay you. We don't publish them, then you don't get paid. Right. That's how it was. So unless you wrote a story for them that made it to print, you're just you know shit out of luck. So Howard was forced to start working a job. Something he hated doing. I mean, don't we fucking all? Because there's a job and there's a career. The job is what you do because you have to make money. Career is what you do because you want to. His career was writing, but he had to get a job, which he didn't want to do. Uh, It's not that he hated work in itself. He hated answering to any type of authority other than his parents. He got a job writing oil news for the local paper, the Cross Plains Review for a five dollar column, column or seventy six dollars today. So you write a five dollars, so seventy six bucks just to write a column on oil news. Not too bad. How often? Uh, that I didn't say. He he did lose that job and would go on to work at the post office, a natural gas company, a laborer for a surveyor, and a stenographer for an oil another oil company. Along with his friend, Tevis Clyde Smith, he wrote hundreds of poems and got dozens published in Weird Tales and other poetry journals. But with bad sales and most publishers resistant to his subject matter, Howard decided poetry was best set aside and wrote little after 1930, instead focusing on short stories and better-paying markets. Um, that be, them, them not wanting to take his material then is kind of surprising because people will take his material later. And it's mostly just beefed up sword wheeling guys saving big boob uh, loose women, which is what he loved. He loved writing stories about big boob loose women. Go figure. <laughs> A man getting romance wrong. 
Oh, he gets ro- romance way wrong. He he could have. You'll see uh, novel and price later on, probably the next episode, and she really likes him, and she actually falls in love with him, and he just completely fucks it up because he does not know a thing about women. He just he's an idiot when it comes to that. Further sales, uh, further story sales to Weird Tales were sporadic but encouraging, and soon Howard was a regular in the magazine. His first cover story was for Wolfshed, a werewolf story published when he was only 20. On reading Wolfshed and Weird Tales, Howard became dismayed with his writing. He quit his stenographer's job to work at Robertson's Drugstore, where he rose to become a head soda jerk on $80 per week. This is later when he tried to you know, stab a guy. Uh, that's about $1,200 today. So $1,200 a week just to work at a drugstore. That's more than what you make working at a drugstore now. Yeah, that's... Damn. Because, you know, minimum wage didn't raise with inflation, so now people who get paid minimum wage can't live off of it. Uh, however, he resented the job itself and worked such long hours every day of the week that he became ill. He relaxed by visiting the Neeb Ice House, to which he was introduced by an oil field worker befriended at the drugstore, to drink and began to take part in boxing matches. Uh, these matches became an important part of his life. The combination of boxing and riding provided an outlet for his frustration and anger. So when you got a very angry person, what do you want him to do? Start punching other people. Yeah, that It seems counterproductive. Complete. Sounds counterproductive to me. Most therapists would tell you if you have anger issues, don't punch people because it'll just make it worse. But, again, 1920s and 30s, people believe different things than what they know now. In August 1926, Howard quit his exhausting job at the drugstore and, in September, returned to Brownwood to complete his bookkeeping course. It was during this August that he began working on the story that would become one of the most important works of his career. While at college, Howard wrote for the newspaper The Yellow Jacket. One of the stories printed, one of the short stories printed in the newspaper was a comedy called Cupid versus Pollock. This story is Howard's earliest surviving boxing story known to exist. It is told in the first person, uses elements of traditional tall tale, and is a fictionalized account of Howard as Steve and his friend Lindsay Tyson as Spike training for a fight. This story and the element it uses would also be important in Howard's literary literature literary future. I tried putting two words together to make one, and you can't do that like that. <laughs> Uh, In May 1927, after having to return home due to contracting measles and then being forced to retake the course, Howard passed his exam. Uh, Measles isn't really something you need to worry about today because you get a vaccine for it. At least most of us do. Yes. Uh, While waiting for the official graduation in August, he returned to writing. His first real triumphs were the publication in Weird Tales of Red Shadows, a story rejected by more popular pulp Argosy. The first of many stories featured the vengeful Puritan swashbuckler Solomon Kane, which I don't know if Stephanie's ever heard of Solomon Kane, but I have. It, it's a fairly it's fairly famous. It's not it's no Conan, but a lot of people you say Solomon Kane if they have anything to do with the sci-fi uh, fantasy genre at all, they know who Solomon Kane is. Uh, a mixture of his- history, swordplay, black magic, and African adventures. Kane is an Elizabethan 
Englishman, a contemporary of Shakespeare, but like many How Howardian characters, a restless outcast, uh, in this case a fanatical Puritan, out to right wrongs and defeat evildoers. Uh, appearing in August 1928 issue of Weird Tales, the character was a big hit with readers and was the first of Howard's characters to, to sustain a series in print beyond just two stories. Uh, seven Kane stories were printed in the 1928 through 1932 period, uh, including Skulls in the Stars, Rattle of Bones, The Moon of Skulls, Hills of the Dead, Footfalls Within, Wings in the Night, Blades of the Brotherhood, The Right Hand of Doom, and a handful more that were never finished. Uh, you can see those titles and you can kind of get a, a theme going of, of what he liked to write about. Yeah, bones. Bones, <laughs> death, battles. Nighttime. <laughs> hey guys, have you been trying to grow out that beard? I know it took me a while to grow mine. Let me tell you about the people over at TheBeardStruggle.com. They have the ultimate collection of beard growth and care products for guys who are just starting their beard journey and only have a little bit of stubble, all the way to men with glorious chin locks all the way down to their belly buttons. They use 100% natural ingredients, never test on animals, and promise a 365-day money-back guarantee. And now, if you use my coupon code KevinY15 at checkout, you'll save an additional 15% off your order. So go to TheBeardStruggle.com or use the link in our show notes and get everything you need to keep that face fur healthy. And don't forget the code KevinY15. That's K-E-V-I-N-Y-1-5 for 15% off today. Go. Now. Odin demands it. The Shadow Kingdom. This story was uh, an experiment with the entire concept of the weird, weird tale horror fiction as defined by practitioners such as Edgar Allan Poe, a. Merritt and H.P. Lovecraft, uh, mixing elements of fantasy, horror, and mythology with historical romance, action, and swordplay into them uh, thematic vehicles never before seen. A new style of tale, which ultimately became known as Sword and Sorcery. So this is where he's really finding his niche, his groove. Uh, he he had to create it himself, but if that's what you got to do then that's fuck what you got to do. Have at it. I and mean... Featuring King Cole, a barbarian outcast from Atlantis, becomes king of the equally fabulous realm of Belusa, where he finds his reign threatened by dire sorcery and shape-changing pre-human serpent men. A tale hit, the tale hit Weird Tales in August 1929 and received fanfare from readers Weird Tales Weird Tales editor Farnsworth Wright. Future. Every time I hear Farnsworth, I think of Futurama. I it, it, I can't not. Farnsworth. Wordsworth. Uh, brought the story. He bought the story for a hundred dollars, the most Howard had earned for a story at that time, and several more more cull stories followed. However, all but two were rejected. Partly out of commercial necessity, Howard wrote series characters who would appear in the course of many stories. This was also the key to his literary methods. His great talent for projecting himself into vividly realized characters who ranged across who raged across time and space. Many of Solomon Kane's stories are clumsy, but Kane is a great character. So even if the story itself isn't perfect, 
as long as the main character draws you in and keeps your attention, you'll keep coming back for more. Uh, the The first two, the first Rocky movie was, or the, the first Rambo movie was great. A few after that, not as great. But you keep watching them because you love Rambo. I, I guess. Well, okay, so so I keep watching them because <laughs> I love Rambo. I mean, I've seen the the first one, maybe the second one. I don't know if I've seen any after that. Like uh, Rocky, the first two Rocky movies, fantastic. Why I'm picking on Sylvester Stallone, I don't know. But the first two Rocky movies, fantastic. The ones after that, not as good, I don't think. But you you go and watch them because it's Rocky, and you love the character for a, a while anyway, until he starts doing the '80s montages in every fucking movie. Uh. Cole was also an intriguing character, but after several more tries and only one subsequent success, The Mirrors of Tuzan Thun, uh, which was published in Weird Tales in September of 1929, he had to put Cole aside. Perhaps the problem was that once a sword and sorcery hero becomes a king, he no, he's no longer free to roam and have individual adventures. The, the thing is when you're just an adventurer, you can go anywhere and explore the world and have all these battles, and you don't know for sure if he's going to make it. But once he's king, kind of got to stay on his throne and rule whatever kingdom he's ruling. He can only sit on his throne and resist attempt attempts at disposing him, which is exactly what the serpent men of Balsuya were up to. Once or twice this works, but it's hard to make a series that way. You can't keep having people trying to kill the king over and over and over again. It, it's repetitive. It doesn't make for a good series. At least, in my mind, it doesn't make for a good series. I mean, th- But there's more that you could do with it. Maybe he didn't think about it. I mean, you can have your prince watch the kingdom while you go off on a mini adventure and then the people who are trying to kill you can follow you and try to kill you while you're on this adventure and then you're you need another creature that you have to kill i mean there that right there is a story arc and all all on its own yeah but the king doesn't want to go out and have all these adventures because the king has to stay back and rule everything if you're making the story about the king it depends on where the the author wants it's to like take with, it. Like uh, with with uh, Game of Thrones, what do they do? They they kill off the fucking king, and now all of a sudden you have this whole story of uh, who's going to get the crown, and they're fighting for it. So that's a spin on it. But the whole story was, but the the king wasn't the main character. Everybody else were the main characters, going after the crown. So the it's, crown itself was the main character. It's the prize. A commonly repeated story about Howard is one told to E. Hoffman Price by Howard's father after his death. In 1928, uh, his dog Patch was dying. When he realized Patch was about to die, he packed a bag, told his mother, Mama, I'm going, and left for Brownwood. Each morning, he phoned to ask about Patch until the dog died a few days later. Patch was buried in the back garden, and any trace of the grave was destroyed prevent, to prevent upsetting Howard any further. He never mentioned the death again, except once briefly to inquire about the grave. The death of Patch hit Howard ha- very hard. He became bitter and angry towards his friends, and boxing is often believed to have become the outlet for these feelings. 
So that's where we go back and we talk about how he, he, he did have, he wasn't, you know, a sociopath or something. He did have a heart, even though he was ready to murder that guy in the drugstore for stealing a magazine. Um, he did, he did have a side. don't have empathy. He had empathy. Exactly. So, um, and then we come to 1929, which was a big year for Howard as he was also able to break into other pulp markets rather than just weird tales. The first of which he uh, he sold was The Apparition in the Prize Ring, uh, a boxing-related ghost story uh, published in the magazine Ghost Stories. You'll come to find that the names for these magazines are not very creative. This is a magazine about ghost stories, so they called it Ghost Stories. There's a magazine about adventures. Guess what they call it? Adventure magazine. Just adventures. Oh. <laughs> uh, well. Then in July, the same year, Argosy, a magazine he had sent plenty of stories to and then rejected by several times in the past, finally published one of his stories, Crowd Horror, which was also a boxing story. Uh, neither developed into an ongoing series, but he sold them. And that's the, he'd been trying to get an Argosy for fucking forever, and they would not buy his shit. Finally, they buy something of his. Persistence is key. Yeah. Well, he was anything, he was persistent. Because he, I mean, and his mother probably helped along the way. Because she would write letters to these magazines like, what the fuck? Why aren't you buying my kid's fucking shit? Probably put more elegantly than that, but still. That's something I would do, probably. Yeah, I can see you doing that. Be like, don't do that. It embarrasses the kid. I don't care. They need to buy his stuff. After small, several small successes and false starts, he turned one of his passions into literary gold. Boxing. In July of 1929, he saw the debut of Sailor Steve Costigan, a name he had used before, in the pages of... Now, now this magazine sold stories about fighting, so what do you think it was called? Fighting. Fight stories. Fight stories. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> a two-fisted mariner... That was tough as nails and a little on the dumb side, but his heart was usually in the right place. Costigan began boxing his way through exotic adventures after exotic adventure after exotic adventure, becoming so popular that the same editors began using additional Costigan episodes in their sister magazine, Action Stories. <laughs> the the series saw a return to Howard's use of humor. And first-person narration with the combination of traditional Paul tales and slapstick comedy. So, like the 1920s uh, Three Stooges, ah, pretty okay. much. Charlie uh, Chaplin. Yeah. Yes, Charlie Chaplin. Uh, Howard was contacted by the publisher Street and Smith in February 1931 with a request to move the Steve Costigan stories to their own pulp, Sports Story Magazine. Yes, that was the name of it, Sports Story Magazine. Because boxing was a sport, and he was a mariner who boxed. Uh, Howard refused, but created a new, similar series just for them, based on a boxer called Kid Allison. Howard wrote ten stories for the series, but Sports Story only published three. So, I can't imagine going doing all that work to make a series and try to line everything up so it's a series, and then, then be like, these seven are no good. These three will take. Yeah, I mean, because if you're... If it's in a series, it's one, like, each story is technically a chapter. Yeah. And then you're taking chapters away from the reader, so they're missing all this information. But seeing back then, they didn't have the big movies and the TV shows that we have now. So reading 
from either books or magazines was the moneymaker back then for, for entertainment-wise. I mean, they, ha- they had movies back then, but they aren't the... They were silent, They weren't black the and white. epic, just monolith that they are. They aren't the fucking Marvel series, like, like what we got now. So reading was the big was like the biggest form of entertainment back then so they could be picky about what they took nowadays you used to put something out into a magazine like that they'll take anything they can fucking get but back then they could be very picky with solid markets now all buying up his stories regularly howard dropped his college classes and would never work a regular job again he'd make his money from writing at 23 from a small oil boom town in Texas, he had become a full-time writer. He was making as good as money as pretty much anyone in the area. His father began bragging about his success to, not to mention, buying multiple copies of his work in the pulp. So his dad's going out, telling everybody how great his son's writing is, and then buying a bunch of the shit just to buy it. So he has it. So he, so his son's stories are selling from the magazine. So, again... You turn to, it looks to me like his parents really did give a shit. All right, if this is true, you know, because people could make this up, they could make that up. If It feels like he was loved by his parents. Right. Uh, Howard's Celtic phase began in 1930, during which he became fascinated by Celtic themes and his own Irish ancestry. Uh, Howard taught himself a little Gaelic, examined um, examined the Irish parts of his family history. Stephanie, you know a little bit about that. I am over 40% Irish. You are very Irish. You're so Irish, your last name was Murphy. Yes. Uh, and began writing about his Irish characters. Turtle Dub O'Brien was created at this time, a character starring in five stories, three of which were published or adapted long after his death. Uh, when Farnsworth Wright started a new pulp that same year called Oriental Stories. <laughs> yeah, because Ireland is Oriental. Well, uh, Howard was ecstatic. Well, this is Howard was ecstatic. There was a venue where he could go apeshit and write the craziest stuff about some of his favorite times and histories and battles. Uh, during the four years of the magazine's existence, he crafted some of his very best tales, gloomy, gloomy vignettes of war in the Middle and Far East during the Middle Ages and the early Renaissance. In addition to series characters such as Turtle Dub O'Brien and Cormac Fitzjoffrey, uh, Howard sold a variety of tales depicting various times and periods from the fall of Rome to the 15th century. The mag- magazine eventually ceased publication in 1934 due to the, any idea? Any idea what could close down a business in the 30s? Oh, the Great Depression. The Great Depression, leaving several of Howard's stories aimed at this market unsold. So we're really getting into the 1930s. Uh, so we're into 1930. We're pushing on through. Um, things look like they're going to be going pretty good for him. For a while, he does say take some downturns uh, here coming that he might he, he doesn't really come out of. Uh, so we'll cover all that the 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 1930s up until his untimely death and uh, the death of his mother and how that affects. I mean, immediately 
affects him. It sounds like it really fucks him up. Yeah, well, by the end of this, you'll be thinking that the only real reason he stayed alive was to take care of his mother. But without her, he had no real reason to live. And it, it's sad, but hey, he's a mama's boy at heart, I guess. That's all that really mattered to him was his mom. So we'll come to that. We'll come. We will eventually, finally, get to Conan, the barbarian. Conan. Uh, the man, the the character that helped create the career of Arnold Schwarzenegger. <laughs> he probably would have done pretty good without the Conan series, but the Conan series helped. Uh, yeah, I'm sure. And, uh, yeah, all I that think stuff. Jingle All the Way yeah. was his best movie. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah and uh, his friendship with uh, Lovecraft and all that to come Exciting. on episode two of Robert. E. Howard. Series 2, episode 2. All Yay! Right. Well, what do you think so far? I'm, I'm very surprised learning about Howard. He's he's very interesting. He was, in, he was, a, he was a interesting guy. Yeah. And, uh, sometimes to his own detriment. So, but uh, I think this just be, should just be a two-parter. We're about halfway through. So, there'll be no big epic ones like Mark Twain. We'll just get two episodes and uh, send everybody on their way. Again, you guys have any uh, comments or questions for us? Did we fuck anything up? Did we get anything right? Let us know. Info at audioparfait.com is our email. www.audioparfait.com is our website. Uh, You can find us on pretty much all the streaming platforms, Google Play, Apple Play, Stitcher, Spotify. We go through Anchor, so go there and check us out. Um, Stephanie, your Twitter? Uh, Twitter and Instagram is at E-C-J-B-A-T. And I am at Young E-T-A-M. That's Y-O-U-N-G-E-T-A-M. Wherever you listen to us at, rate us, review us, let us know how we're doing. It really helps. We are a homegrown podcast network uh, doing this all ourselves. In our on a card table in our bedroom, and <laughs> with our dog chewing on a bone very loudly, and one cat in heat. <laughs> we couldn't be more proud of ourselves. For it. So uh, thank you, thank you guys, and uh, until we get to talk to you next time, do open yourself a, a favor and open a fucking book. Bye.